When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast. This week, Episode 9, A Peep Behind the Iron Curtain. So, as we move on from the Bronze Age, and as we get towards the end of the Iron Age, we see some various things happening. Uh, The Bronze Age, of course, saw a codification of roles. We can see that there was some sort of stratification with a higher class and a lower class, And there was some sense of a warrior class. This can be shown out by the amount of arms that were selectively buried into water sources and things of that nature. However, as we moved on from that age, we sort of saw a position where the elites stopped being so elite. In part, this is probably because of the uh, change in environmental landscape as things sort of got worse for our local landlords and, and shaman and wealthy people because of the economic and especially the environmental changes. One thing that didn't change was the warrior caste. Even as the elites seemed to disappear from the record, at least the archaeological record, the warrior caste with their swords and their chariots and all this other paraphernalia which comes with it seems to have actually grown, not lessened. This group actually added to their numbers and Reasons for this could be numerant. We could be looking at a growth in confrontational ritualization of warfare. We could be looking at things like raiding becoming much more of a thing. We do know that, as we said last week, there was an arming up, especially in the West, in Wales, of the landscape and of the farmsteads, and people began to protect themselves more. And, of course, we reached the border areas where the hill forts became a popular way of defending yourself. As we said previously, we think the hill fort started out as more of a peaceable reason, a place to store, uh, protect your animals, possibly from raiding, for example. It also could have been a situation where people became concerned about the community and trying to build the community. But as we move into the Iron Age and as we get closer to the arrival of the Romans, It is definitely not just for that reason. We actually see a militarization, as it were, of these landscapes in the way that causeways are built. Causeways, something we haven't really discussed, they're land walk paths over things like swamps and small lakes and things of that nature. They were kind of like a a dock, but they were fairly narrow. It just allowed basically people to make passage in a quicker manner and not get stuck and maybe not get animals stuck. And so it allowed them to walk. Well, causeways kind of became the way you you communicated and and met from place to place. There was uh, archaeological discovery in the early 2000s of causeways that were in southern Wales from an Iron Age hill fort. 
So they've always been kind of an important area for Britain, and they have, were very important in the Iron Age as a way of quickly moving people. They were, in effect, pre-roads, and they were typically made of wood. Uh, they're hard to find now because what you find is you find post holes, but occasionally, because of the bogs, we're actually able to find evidence of the actual uh, trackway and causeway, and, and we can find evidence of the wood because of the way bogs preserve things. Now, bogs are going to become a key discussion point in a couple of episodes from now when we start talking about religious things. But for now, they act as sort of a, a way of preserving things, and because of the lack of oxygen in bogs, it helps to keep things from decomposing. And of course, wood is one of those things. So the wood that we find in there is actually fairly well preserved. And so you can find things from the Iron Age, which we wouldn't normally find. Like I said before, wood would combust normally. So if anything was done with wood, it would be very hard to track that down unless it was in very specific circumstances, one of which is being in a bog. As we move away or move to these kind of things, like I said, it does appear that we can see a militarization that happens. There's definitely a sense that things are getting serious. Uh, the reason why we say this is because in in southern England and in the west, uh, you see hill forts get much more complex. There's very difficult switchbacks and little roads that go up and down hill forts now. They're not like a straight shot up to the entrance way. To get to the entrance, you've got to take all these different little rising things. And at each point, of course, in a military situation, that would be a very strategic thing because then you'd have a way to stop somebody before they got to your entrance point because you'd have all these switchbacks to kind of slow them down. So you have this kind of thing happening. Plus, the other reason why we know there's militarization is because we can find evidence of it in other ways. In fact, in one uh, area in Hampshire, in one hill fort, we actually find damage of fires and of conflict type things. Uh, in fact, the fire issue is found in a number of hill forts, and there is evidence of military weaponry in the idea that, in fact, in Dorset at uh, Maiden Castle, there is found a, a deposit of up to 22,000 sling stones across the site. Now, sling stones are the little stones you put in a sling, obviously, to chuck, uh, just like David and Goliath kind of stuff. Normally, these could be used for, for pastures and for ranching as you protect your animals from wolves and, and foxes and things. But the reality of it is you don't have 22,000 of them if all you're doing is fighting animals. That shows that they're being used for something much more important. And... I would argue the more important thing is dealing with your fellow neighbors who may be causing you trouble. Now, we don't have evidence of open, proper, what we think of as warfare in the Iron Age. You don't find, you know, massive graves or burials with people with injuries all over the place. I mean, there is some evidence of that, but it's not by any means broad. So there's a difficulty in kind of saying, well, yeah, there's an obvious sense that there's been militarization and there's been wars and there's been fighting and, and there's a winner, there's a loser, which of course history loves that argument, right? But what we do find instead is we find these evidences of weaponry. So why would they be defending themselves in this manner? Why would they be setting up these massive infrastructure if it was only just to deal with, you know, a bit of a problem with some animals or maybe a little local raiding issue periodically? That's way too much effort for that. So to my mind, that shows that we're having conflict 
and that it's not just a little bit of conflict. Now, it could be in the shape of, as I said before, raids. It could be in the shape of guerrilla warfare, where you're just getting hit periodically. They're stealing, a, 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 you know, livestock, or they're stealing things, or they're killing off some of your soldiers, picking them off one by one. And maybe we find evidence that actually some of these hill forts go out of use. Could it be because they were raided to the point where they couldn't function anymore? Or was it a case of people just moved into different ones because there was better protection at a new site? That part we don't... Again, this is a lot of conjecture, as that it always is in the prehistoric era. You know, even with all the archaeological evidence we have, we're never going to really know everything about it. And I, I apologize for continually bringing that part up. But the reality of it is, I, it is something that we continue to bang out on because we just don't know enough. And we're only now, at this late date in the Iron Age, going to get our first image of what is going on in Britain and why does this place become so important that it needs to be invaded, needs a new government, needs to be dominated by a totally different set of people, that they found it important enough to go do that. So we're now going to start to cover this as we take our first look Iron Age Britain. Now, the very first evidence that we have from a written source of that we actually have a copy of, as opposed to some of this, because some of these sources that we do have aren't really sources anymore. Uh, some of the books that were written at the time don't exist anymore, and what we have is we have pieces and parts of them in other books. And we'll go into that and why that might be. So one of the evidences we have, and the first written evidence we think, comes from Herodotus, the great Greek author uh, from about 400 BC who lived during the time of the Persian Wars and wrote about that and wrote about the lead up to what would then become the Peloponnesian Wars between Athens and Sparta. And his writings was kind of, it's kind of like I heard a story from some guy who I met in the market and he kind of told me this and I'm not sure I believe him, but I'm laying this out here just in case it actually works. And the one thing with Herodotus, he does that. He does it with a lot of what goes on in Persia and the Middle East. He'll write things he's heard and kind of give you his own uh, author's notes as to whether he accepts that. But aside from that, I think this is a very fascinating idea. And, and so what he ends up talking about is some islands that were called, the, uh, and apologies if I'm getting pronunciations of these wrong, Kassaritides, um Islands. Now, he calls them that because that means in Greek, the Tin Islands. And he basically says they were vaguely off to the west, somewhere above present-day Spain, and that he didn't really know much about it. He uh, Now, the interesting thing about that is, is that where it may have come from is uh, some traders at Massalia who tapped into the Atlantic tin sources and were probably vague about where exactly these sources had come from. Obviously, they might change the names that were associated with them. They may have been very vague with, you know, where it had come from because they didn't want other groups to steal their sources. So, obviously, at this point, they would be very cagey. And it turns out that these areas are likely going to be uh, Galicia, America and the southwest Britain, because these were increasing sources of tin for the Phoenicians and eventually for the Greeks. And in fact, Herodotus says that's where the Greek tin comes from, is from these areas. Uh, 
or at least these islands that he's referring to. The next step in our in our contact with Britain comes actually from a book, which unfortunately we don't have anymore. Uh, it's actually written by Pythias in about 320 BC. He was a great Greek explorer and writer, and he wrote a book which apparently was called On the Ocean, where he describes his travels across uh, Europe and then into the ocean areas around Europe. And he has very detailed and very interesting discussions about it, which I think would be quite fascinating to read. And it's unfortunate we don't have it anymore, as we've probably lost out on a lot of the perspective that the Greeks would have had for these areas. And I think it was very interesting to sort of see that idea come forward. But unfortunately, as I say, we don't have a copy of it. What we do have is writings of other people who appear to be quoting him. Uh, one of which is uh, Timaeus, and another of which is uh, Diodorus Scilius, and he actually writes a fairly detailed commentary. Now, this is more towards, uh, he's now a Roman Greek, writes about them, and we feel like he's taken this largely from on the ocean, simply because it's too personalized and it's too specific. Now, Greeks didn't call Britons Britons. That's actually a Roman term. They actually called them the Pratani. Pratani is actually a Celtic word, and there is thoughts that it may be rooted from the, the phrase the painted ones, which would make some sense if you think about it, because both in the case of the Picts and prior to that, when uh, Julius Caesar arrives in Britain, he talks about how the British people were painted in woad and were blue in appearance because of that woad. And so that would if you're describing a painted one, that would certainly be an easy way to explain that. Now, uh, Scilius describes it this way, and I just want to read what he has to say, because as I say, I think this is actually our first real description of the inhabitants of the island. Now, here is a translation, so they say Britain, just FYI. The inhabitants of Britain who live on the promontory called Bellarian are especially friendly to strangers, and have adopted civilized ways of life because of their interaction with traders and other people. It is they who work the tin, treating lairs with which contain it in an ingenious way. Uh, he then goes on to explain the, the tin trade from the British perspective and what they were doing. And long and the short of it was is that they had an ex a way to extract the tin and then they brought them to islands and turned them into tin ores, or not tin ores, into tin ingots, which were then transported by the traders. And it's interesting because it makes you wonder if the traders were not actually allowed on the island, that they were only allowed to go to the small island where the trade was happening rather than the big island where all the action was happening. Maybe because they didn't want to give up their the 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 monopoly that they had on that trade. So you can kind of see how this expedition becomes kind of interesting. And like I said, he goes into a lot of detail, uh, including how they get to the island, that the fact that the island at some points wasn't actually an island, that you could actually walk out to it, that it was like a peninsula, then the tide would roll in and suddenly it was an island again. And then that's when it recedes, they would go back and... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. 
Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week, like breakfasts, on the go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. It was very much a merchant area, and everything was sort of done in common, and you didn't have a conflict between the various groups that were there. Now, the easiest way to not have conflict with the groups that are there is likely that they were all in the same tribal group. And probably this was the selling point for the local traders because they would come in from other places. And the one thing we do know in this time period, we see a massive sea change in the way trade is being done to Britain. And in the late Iron Age, and especially around the time of Julius Caesar, and especially after Julius Caesar, there is a massive change in the way people in Britain start to act in the things they do and how they carry out some of the ideas that they have. One of the things that changes is the fact you'll see some of the southeastern uh, Britons using coinage, uh, which had never been in Britain before that. And that in and of itself is fascinating because what does that say? We're not in, other than the fact that there's obvious interactions between Rome and the Middle East, and this area of Britain. And the other way that we know this was happening is also there's a transition of uh, between America and the rest of Britain in trade that was made. The only areas that really didn't do a lot of trading that we know of were probably in West Wales and that area for some reason, probably because the resources were dried up or maybe there wasn't as plentiful as they were before. And you can't get things like 
there's not massive growing areas, so you don't have the abundance of cereal crops that you would get from, say, southeastern England, which is much more flatter and plain-like, and thus much richer in those kind of items. Now, the one thing you would get in the West is obviously ranching, and I'm sure there was, to some degree, still some of that. But nonetheless, we don't know. And all we do know is that they were much more militant in that part of part of Britain, that the West in Cornwall and Wales, farmsteads were much more heavily enclosed with walls and ditches, while other parts of the West and in Scotland, they used things like towers and all sorts of structures that were, as I say, much more militant, much more difficult to explain, and were probably creating tension among the various neighbors. And what we do see start to happen at this point, and I think it's important to keep in mind this, is that we will then start to see a coalescing of probably these various groups into tribes, be it through conquest, be it through uh, the taking of areas, through natural protection, and all of these things. And this will continue to grow in the way it comes across and the way things happen. And I think as we get into the next episode, we'll talk about who these specific tribes were that Julius Caesar at least initially runs into in in England, but or what we now call England. And specifically, we're going to talk about the main tribes in Wales. And there were a few of them, so there's not like one or two. There's actually, I think, four. We know a lot about three of them and less about the other. But we'll do as much as we can to kind of cover each one of them and give you an idea of what they were like, what they were doing, kind of how they were perceived by the Romans as they arrived. And of course, then we'll roll into other things. But at the moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about why would this perception be of this mysterious island? Why is there a perception that it's valuable? Because the one thing that starts to happen with the Romans is they start to look at it not just as a mysterious place, not just as an unusual place, but a place where there's some value to it. And why would there be value to it at this point? Now, one of the things, like I said, is there's an increase in trade. And what we definitely do see towards the 2nd and 1st century BC is an arrival of coinage. And it starts out with coinage from the Gaelic-Belgian areas of northern France and Belgium. It becomes something of an import in eastern Britain, so most of southeastern England and into Cornwall, we've found evidences of these coins being spread about. So this shows that the trade between the two groups was growing, and that there was a sense of a need to establish some sort of trade in a monetary fashion. Now that may be because that's what the eastern, you know, the French populations that were coming over had to trade with. It could also be that that became sort of an honor thing. There is some sense that maybe these weren't treated necessarily as coins, but they were maybe gifts that were given to the chiefs of certain tribes or certain high men in the areas to kind of pacify or as a sign of trade, a sign of an alliance, all of these kind of things. And we do know for a fact that there were alliances between the Eastern Britain tribes and the Gaelic tribes by the time Julius Caesar arrives on the scene in Gaul and begins his Gallic Wars, there are actually British tribes that are fighting in France, in Gaul, against Caesar. So obviously, there's such a connection between the two sides that there's 
this sense of alliance and a sense of needing help from other groups. So if you're able to do that, it does show that there's some commonality and some common trade between the two. Now, none of this happens in Wales. Uh, most of the Welsh tribes don't seem to interact in the same way. We don't see the same massive influx of Western uh, French trading through the various tribes that are in northern France with Britain, but we definitely do see it in the coastal cities in and around eastern Britain. And like I said, there starts to become... One of the things that comes out of this is later we will actually see British coins being made for the first time. And these are not coins from Rome. These are actually uh, Celtic-style coins from the sort of the stylized Celtic way that will actually be imported into Britain and, and start to be used in their own manner and their own methods for making exchanges. As I said, whether those were used for a money exchange or if they were actually used for awards, we don't actually know. Archaeologists have speculated. Nobody's really sure what happened, but we can definitely find deposits of these as we get closer to when Claudius invades in the beginning of the uh, first century AD. And so a lot of things are kind of shipping back and forth. The other thing that's happening is we're getting a lot of pottery transferred back and forth as well. And pottery finds of America and areas around uh, northern Gaul are found in Britain now. And so all of a sudden we've gone from this island, which was untouched, to an island that had a population that had grown up on it, had traveled from Doggerland and from Gaul into Britain as the upper land at the initial point, to eventually being isolated, to eventually maintaining contact again with these groups and developing their own style in the process, but then also bringing over that culture and that idea. So you start to see some similarities now growing, uh, one of which Caesar brings up, which is the arrival of the Belgic people. And the Belgae are described as living in areas around southeastern Britain, uh, sort of towards the Portsmouth area uh, and Southampton. And the evidence, according to Caesar, is that these people looked like they were from the Belgic areas. That's the reason why he said that they had the same names. The question is, is that the case, or is it more a case of adoption of that name because of an alliance, because of a marriage? There's a number of reasons why this could have happened, which have nothing to do with an actual invasion from the Belgic people. Rather, it could be a case of that uh, there was a combination of these two tribes, or maybe they just had similar names, and Caesar mixed them up. We really don't know. Uh, but Roman geographers and Roman writers will describe them as such at that point. They will have a bunch of other tribes which will come up and we'll talk about in full detail next week. But I think for now, that's all I really want to discuss about them. Now, what I want to do want to talk about is the perception of non-British uh, writers as they're reviewing these people, and especially going into the very first century AD as more Roman writers start to write about the Celtic populations in Britain and the Iron Age Britons in general. And it's interesting to see that these these people that have been in evidence archaeologically for the better part of 10,000 years are now suddenly reaching the written record. And, and what is the written record saying about them? 
Well, it gets into their militarism. It gets into their religion and mysticism. It gets into a lot of discussions about their strangeness and their foreignness and their nasty religious habits, according to the Romans. You know, the the justification for why it was good to go take control of that area. But the one thing that isn't really talked about much, but is talked about by early Roman writers, is the fact that it was understood by traders that Britain was a source of material wealth, be that through trade of animals, be that through trade of slaves, be that through trade of uh, mineral wealth. We know that there was a sense that Britain was ripe for taking over and taking control of. And why would that be? Why would it be worth it for somebody like the Britons to be invaded? What was the point or need that the Romans saw to do it. Now, in part, we can argue that it was done because of the interference of the British people in the Gallic Wars. We can argue that it was done because there was a seen to be a problem with the British people. Or one can also argue rationally, I think, that the Roman impetus for needing a win for an emperor and for a leader to show that they were truly a leader, you had to win big in a military style, even if it wasn't a, wasn't anything but a pretend win, such as Augustus gaining back the eagles from Parthia, which wasn't really a battle. It was a negotiation, but he treated it like a battle, had a triumph and everything. Um, these things are important. And so all of that goes into it. But I think the material wealth is also very important. And I think it's obvious as the Romans are moving north, they're hearing more and more about it. Because, of course, they're now taking over areas which used to trade with them all the time. I mean, Gaul was a major trade center to Britain. You know, uh, Celtic Iberia was a big area for trade to Britain. We have evidence of that. And so the knowledge that this island contained things that were important were worth having, were worth stealing, to be blunt, uh, is obvious in this situation. And I think what we're going to see as we go forward, that this will continue to be the pressing reason to go there, initially to explore, but then to take over. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the tribes that are there when the Romans get there. And then we're going to start bringing those Romans on board, and we're going to start to talk about them and, and the difference that they make to the British population as they come in. We're going to go further and further into that as we move on into our double digits. And certainly we're going to get into what the Romans found when they came here and specific or came here, came to Britain and specifically what was it that was so important for them to find. And so as we move forward, we'll understand this more. We'll get to know them more. And then we'll start to move into the aftermath of the Roman invasion and how the British population worked with the Romans, worked against the Romans, how that then affects Wales, because let me tell you, Wales features big time in the Roman history of Britain. And we'll get from here on out, we're going to start to narrow our focus more in on Britain and more in specifically on Wales. And we'll then we'll come out again and focus on the Romans in general. And we'll focus on what's happening in other parts of the world, because that will then affect what happens in Wales. But as always... I hope you'll continue to join me. Please give us a rating and a review on iTunes and on Android and Google Play because those things help us so much and help other people to find our podcast. Social media sharing is great. I'm 
very happy with how everyone is responding to these episodes, and I hope you continue to hang out with me. And if you have any questions and concerns and want to talk to me about anything, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, and have a brilliant day. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. What's up, guys? We just launched a Patreon to help us bring in some money for upgrades and advertising. There's a lot of cool tiers on there that you should check out, and you can get all the extra content for just $5 a month. Check it out at patreon.com slash distractionsmedia. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.